Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 95 100 Gated Thebes. Today we explore the aftermath of Amunhotep III's war in Nubia, as he takes the spoils and plunders of his campaign and uses them to fund one of the most ambitious building programs in Egypt's history. This episode is brought to you by Joel Hadari, who sponsored the show single-handedly. Joel, thank you for your kind donation. May Amun, the Hidden One, enliven your days and bring peace to your household. To everyone listening, please enjoy the show. Once upon a time, a Greek writer named Homer put pen to paper in a work of composition. He told a story, a story of great warriors and a mighty city, a story of kings, of treasure, and of the workings of great gods who played roles in the drama of human life. It was a grand story. You may have heard of it. It's called the Iliad. The Iliad features a number of references to Egypt and its surroundings, most notably the tale of Memnon, warrior of Ethiopia, who came with his warriors to aid the Trojans in their fight against Greek aggression. In another reference, the Greek hero Achilles speaks of Egypt in very specific terms. Achilles, furious at the disrespect of his overlord Agamemnon, tells us how he would not accept even a piece of Agamemnon's gifts. In fact, Achilles' anger is so great that he would not change his mind, even if the king gave him all the wealth of Egypt, specifically the wealth of the city of Thebes. Achilles speaks, quote, I wouldn't give you a splinter for that man. Not if he gave me ten times as much, twenty times over, all he possesses now and all that could pour in from the world's end. Not all the wealth that's freighted into Orchomenos, even into Thebes, Egyptian Thebes, where the houses overflow with the greatest troves of treasure. Thebes with the hundred gates and through each gate battalions. Two hundred fighters surge to war with teams and chariots. No, not if his gifts outnumbered all the grains of sand and dust in the earth. No, not even then could Agamemnon bring my fighting spirit round, until he pays me back. Achilles, or rather Homer, speaks of Thebes as a city of a hundred gates. The Greek word for gate or gateway is pule or poulon, In the Egyptian context, we pronounce it pylon, and it refers to the monumental gateways of the Egyptian temples. The Egyptian pylons, in case you don't know, are the tall stone structures shaped like triangles with the top cut off. 
they frame the doorways of Egyptian temples. They are formidable edifices, like a pair of truncated pyramids, and they proclaim to all, here is the sanctuary of a god. When Homer called Thebes hundred-gated Thebes, he was not pulling an image out of thin air. In fact, Thebes did have many, many gateways. Karnak Temple alone had at least ten pylons. Luxor Temple had two, and a dozen or so mortuary temples on the West Bank all had one or two pylons of their own. So Thebes once had many gateways. Among cities, its reputation was one of wealth and grandeur, expressed in the number of its monuments. That reputation for grand buildings is expressed most brilliantly in the reign of Amunhotep III. This king added to the cityscape more than any other before him. In this episode, and the next, we will see how a young pharaoh, just 17 years old, started to reshape and redesign the southern city, and how a legend, Hundred Gated Thebes, was born. The year was 1397 BCE, early October. In the city of Thebes, nobles and high officials rejoiced as their pharaoh, Amunhotep III, returned from campaign. In the streets, commoners welcomed their boys home. The city was in a good mood. Pharaoh and his warriors had spent the past eight weeks in the south, first on a brutal campaign, and then on an exploratory mission deep into southern Nubia. They were tired and dusty, but elated. They had achieved victory, and they returned home as conquerors. The ships of the king sailed down the Nile and approached Thebes. For the next few days, the docks of the city would bustle and hum as soldiers, porters, and servants came and went. First men, then weapons, and then supplies were unloaded one by one. Great ships began to discharge their goods and their treasures. The scribes of Pharaoh were kept busy with counting. In addition to the various tools of the army, the great ships also carried more valuable supplies. After eight weeks in Nubia, including visits to distant trading lands, the ships of the king were filled with spoils and plunder. Ostrich eggshells and feathers, chunks of gold, fine pottery, animal skins, incense, and other exotic goods were stacked high within the holds. These treasures were guarded jealously and removed from the ships under strict guard. After unloading, they were carried to Karnak Temple. In the 18th dynasty, pharaohs seem to have stored their plunder and military spoils in the great temples of the land. It was a way of thanking gods for their blessings in war and ensuring that goodwill continued to shine down from heaven. Now there's a whole bunch of political and social stuff going on beneath the surface. But for now, we can simply say that the next step of Amunhotep's reign was to lavish gold and treasures upon the great home of Amun. The economic bond between Pharaoh and God was stronger than ever. The spoils of Nubia fed the military-religious machine. The wealth went straight to Karnak, into the hidden storerooms and magazines, safe and secure from prying hands. But pretty quickly it would have been brought out for various purposes. Festivals were a good chance to show off splendour. Offerings and rituals could use exotic goods as part of the divine gifts. 
and of course, a lot of the wealth would be used to supply, to fund, and to improve the temple itself. This, we think, is how Amunhotep began the second phase of his enormous building program. Back in episode 90, we saw how one of Amunhotep's earliest proclamations was to open the stone quarries of the two lands. He ordered stonemasons and foremen to assemble at places like Tura, Gebelain, Aswan, and Akmim, and begin to procure the huge quantities of stone which would be needed for different monuments. Temples in the north of Egypt, like the Temple of Min at Akmim, of Thoth at Hermopolis, and Ptah at Memphis, already had received great additions. Now, the work was going to expand even further. Returning in victory to Thebes, and with the plunder of Nubia filling his coffers, Amunhotep now turned his mind towards the southern city itself. For the sanctuary of Amun at Karnak, and the temple of Luxor down the road, Amunhotep planned new and grand additions. Some of these monuments survive today, and they are among the most impressive works of the whole region. Starting at Karnak, Amunhotep decided to expand the great temple, adding a new gate or pylon to the entrance. This building is called the Third Pylon, and its story is a very curious one. The third pylon was grand, 28 metres tall, made of sandstone, with flagpoles adorning its front. It faced westward towards the River Nile, and this gave it special prominence to anyone approaching from the west, or sailing past on the river. The third pylon, and by extension the king who built it, became the new face of Amun's holy precinct. It would remain that way for 50 years. The third pylon stood strong and grand for millennia, but in the late 1800s an earthquake struck the city, and a significant part of the pylon collapsed from the stress. As you can imagine, this was a bit of a catastrophe, and the Egyptian Antiquities Service soon began repairing the monument. What followed was a strange discovery. After the earthquake, a man named Henri Chevrier set to work repairing and reconstructing the pylon. To do this, Chevrier had to essentially dismantle Amunhotep's monument, and then put it back together piece by piece. He and his team documented each block, removed it, and set it aside for later restoration. As the blocks came out one by one, the pylon's inner masonry was revealed. What Chevrier discovered was most unexpected. The face of Amunhotep's pylon is sandstone. Inside, though, Chevrier found something wholly different. Instead of the sandstone blocks he expected, Chevrier and his team began to turn up blocks of different types. Granite, limestone, alabaster, all kinds of building materials in blocks that were also decorated. As the team worked, they pulled out more than 900 pieces of this unexpected material. Pretty soon, it became clear what they were dealing with. In order to build his pylon, Amunhotep III did something remarkable. He ordered his men to demolish a number of smaller monuments that were clustered around the western face of the temple. Among these monuments, Amunhotep's men destroyed a colonnade of Thutmose II, the famous Red Chapel of Hatshepsut, episode 65, and the White Chapel of Senusaret I, episode 36. All of these were pulled down piece by piece to make space. Then, when the area was clear, 
the builders used those pieces to reinforce the masonry of the new pylon. In effect, Amunhotep cannibalized a whole swathe of older structures, and used the destruction to build his pylon high. As Chevrier and his team worked, they pulled out blocks belonging to 11 different buildings. Some of these have been reconstructed, like the chapels of Senusaret and Hatshepsut, and others remain in pieces. Many of the pieces are now in Karnak's open-air museum, next to the main sanctuary, and you can view them today. So Amunhotep III, greatest of builders, was also a bit of a creative arsonist. He pulled down monuments of his predecessors, and replaced them with a huge new gate. In doing so, he unwittingly preserved these older monuments, and gave a new lease of life to works that might otherwise have disappeared. So on the one hand, it was a bit of a disrespectful move. On the other, we have benefited immensely from his tools. So thank you, Amunhotep. The new pylon was begun not long after the king returned from his Nubian campaign. We know this because when he later described the monument, Amunhotep specifically mentions the campaign as the source of the temple's decoration. You see, when the king described his pylon, he spoke of it in the most lavish terms. Quote, The king made a monument for Amun, a very great gate in front of Amun-Re, lord of the thrones of the two lands. It was worked with gold throughout, its pavement was made pure with silver. Its two pylons reached to the sky, like the four supports of heaven. The flagpoles shined skyward, being worked in fine gold. His Majesty brought the gold for this temple from Nubia on his first victorious campaign of slaying the vile Kushites. The king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Neb Ma'at Re, beloved son of Amun Re, the son of Re, Amunhotep, ruler of Thebes. End quote. Amunhotep's pylon was a grand edifice, but we should not believe for a second his talk of decoration on that scale. Granted, there would have been some bling, gold or electrum on the flagpoles, and tops of the pylons are quite believable. Those would catch the sun and make the monument shine at daybreak and dusk. The floor might very well have had some sections plated in metal. We know from other sites that you might have plates of copper around columns or on the floor, Amunhotep could have done that quite easily. So he's not lying, just exaggerating, but when a pharaoh talks like this, you try not to take him too seriously. With the new pylon under construction, and the face of Karnak being radically redesigned, Amunhotep now turned his attention to the other great temple of Thebes. Down the road, at Luxor Temple, the king had another set of renovations in mind. This time, he was going to make even more elaborate changes. In essence, Amunhotep completely rebuilt this temple. The Temple of Luxor is one of the most important sanctuaries in southern Egypt. On the surface, it's a temple to Amun, and Amun's family, Mut and Khonsu. Beneath the surface, Luxor is also dedicated to the cult of the king himself. It works to provide for the king's spirit, and to give him the energy to rule, 
When Amunhotep III started his work at Luxor Temple, he created one of the most powerful machines in his spiritual arsenal. Go to Luxor today and you will see structures ranging from the Islamic, Roman and Kushite periods, and the days of Ramesses II, Tutankhamun, and Amunhotep III. Remarkably, almost all of the earliest structures are gone, replaced when Amunhotep decided to rebuild Luxor Temple from the ground up. Amunhotep III's architects went at Luxor Temple with a spectacular vision. They completely changed the structure and shape of the monument, embellishing almost every single aspect in some way. Although they left a few small shrines intact, almost the entire temple that we see today was commissioned under Amunhotep III. This is a tragedy for our knowledge of the earlier past, but a remarkable testament to the projects initiated by this king. To begin with, the pre-existing sanctuaries were demolished. The inner sanctum, home of the divine statues, was pulled down, redesigned, and a new set of shrines erected. This building was larger in every dimension than what had come before. New rooms for the statues, new colonnades, and a dozen storerooms around them to hold goods. In the very centre, a tiny darkened room, the sanctuary was created anew. This would be a shadowed, closeted space, filled with strange sights and smells. In the air, the scent of incense from Punt. On the walls and ornaments, the gold of Nubia. On offering tables, vegetables and meats from the farms of Egypt. Every day, priests wearing leopard skins would enter the hall in order to pray to the statues and to clothe Amun in fresh linen. They offered the god bread and wine from the pharaoh's estates. Above them, on the walls, images of Pharaoh himself looked down on the proceedings, his smiling eyes captured in bright colours. Here, in the Holy of Holies, the priests of Luxor Temple prayed to Amun for the health and satisfaction of the king. The sanctuary of Amun, the inner temple, was being rebuilt. Outside this space, the stonemasons and architects of Pharaoh were hard at work expanding the rest of the temple. To begin with, New storerooms and magazines were needed, places to hold offerings or priestly tools. These buildings surrounded the inner shrines and fleshed out the core sanctuary. Then there were the major additions to the new temples. A new colonnade was planned, a hall which rose high and filled the temple with space for decoration, for sacred texts and for statues of the king. In between these columns, images of Amun, Mut and Khonsu were erected for veneration. Some of these statues remain today, and they show the divine family in serene contemplation. In the ancient days, they would have shone with bright paint, and in the shadows, their eyes seemed alive. Amun's sanctuary sat at the very back of Luxor Temple. In front of it, a range of new structures were being put into place. First, the king's architects added a large courtyard, square-shaped, with columns all around the perimeter. In the centre, a large open expanse gave room for a congregation. On special occasions, members of the royal family and nobility would gather in this courtyard to see the god's statue brought forth. Clearly, Amunhotep was planning on a large group, because this courtyard is huge. The whole temple was surrounded by a mud-brick wall, and at the very front, tall stone pylons marked the entrance. 
Now, if you visit the temple today, it's about twice the size as it was when Amunhotep was working. Thanks to the constructions of kings like Tutankhamun, Horemheb, Ramesses II, and Shabaka, the temple has doubled in size over the years. But still, a good 50% of it is the work of Amunhotep. Pretty impressive, all things considered. I've placed some images on the website of how the temple might have looked in this period. I recommend checking them out. With work underway at Luxor, Pharaoh had started another major project, one that would continue for decades. When it came time to record his contributions to this temple, the king described it lavishly. Quote, The king of Upper and Lower Egypt, lord of the two lands, Neb Ma'at Re, the son of Re, the lord of diadems, Amunhotep, the lord of Thebes. He is content with the work for his father Amun in Luxor Temple. Work of fine sandstone, wide, very great, and exceedingly beautiful. Its walls are of fine gold, its pavements of silver. All of its gates are worked with the pride of lands. Its pylons reach to the sky, its flagpoles to the stars. When the people see this monument, they give praise to his majesty. King Neb Ma'atre gladdens the heart of his father Amun, who gave him all foreign countries. The son of Re, Amunhotep, Lord of Thebes, has been beneficent since the day of birth. End quote. Luxor Temple, called Ipet Reshit, the Southern Sanctuary, was a glittering monument to the wealth of the new kingdom. Gold, precious stones, silver, and high-quality wood were everywhere, a shining example of Pharaoh's power, his reach, and the servitude in which he held all foreign countries. Here, at the Sanctuary of Amun, the treasures of the world came to glorify the god and the king. As work proceeded on the sanctuaries and the courtyard, Amunhotep could see great works underway. To cap it off and give the temple a new entranceway, he commissioned yet another pylon to guard the approach to Luxor. This was the second pylon or gateway to rise in this king's reign. It would not be the last. The temples of Luxor and Karnak were now bustling hives of activity. Masons, craftsmen, architects, and labourers were hard at work, reshaping the great sanctuaries for the glory of the gods. It was hard work, but the payoff would be spectacular, a legacy in stone that is the envy of the ancient world. Making their contributions to Thebes of the Hundred Gates, the workers could satisfy themselves with the knowledge that their craft would endure forever. Apart from the great building plans, Amunhotep III also requested three more additions to the sacred cult of Amun. These projects were smaller, but fascinating nonetheless. After the break, we will explore them in detail. See you in a moment.
save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. The year was now 1396 BCE, January. Amunhotep III, five months into his fifth regnal year, was residing in Thebes. Thebes, the southern city, the place of truth. Thebes, city of the hundred gates. It was a good time to be a Theban, for the king and his governors were lavishing wealth on the city's monuments. From Karnak to Luxor, and even on the West Bank, workers of all groups were being employed on immense projects. Among the artisans of Thebes, more than one workshop was being given a very special commission. You see, while the builders had plenty to do, there was also a demand for new statues and images of the great gods. Among the skilled artists, some lucky group was given the task of making a new ornament for the great god Amun. Amunhotep III was wealthy. He had access to resources that came from all over the world. Nubia, Cyprus, and Syria were rich sources of material for his projects. When it came to decorate his temples, he used those connections lavishly. Quote, I, Amunhotep, made another monument for my father, Amun-Re, who set me upon his throne. I set about making for him a great bark or ship called Amun-Re, firm of brow. It was carved of new pine wood, cut by my majesty in the countries of Lebanon, and dragged there from the mountains by the chiefs of all foreign lands. End quote. One day, a ship came into the harbour carrying a shipload of wood. This wood, straight and strong, had come from the great forests of Lebanon. It was shipped to Thebes and taken to the workshop of a craftsman. There, it would be turned into a beautiful new bark. The bark, or boat, of a god was an ornate affair. It would sit in a shrine or on carrying poles, and be carried out of the temple on festival days. In the middle of the bark, the god's golden statue would sit. Whoever was carving this new ornament had to make it beautiful. Fortunately, the pharaoh was sparing no expense. Quote, This bark is very wide and great. The like has never been made. Its interior is made pure with silver. It is worked with gold throughout. A great shrine of fine gold fills the entire surface. Its projecting ends double its length and bear great crowns. Uraeus serpents coiled about the sides provide protection. Before the shrine stand flagpoles worked with fine gold and two tall obelisks between them. It is beautiful on all sides. End quote. This sounds like an incredibly complex piece of craftsmanship. A boat worked in gold and silver with long carrying poles to support it. In the centre, a shrine of gilded wood with crowns decorating each end, and carved serpents on the outside. In front of the shrine, miniature flagpoles and obelisks to complete the image. It sounds bafflingly ornate, basically a miniature temple carved in wood and decorated in gold and silver, made so that Amun would always be protected. 
I wonder if the craftsmen who had to make this piece were elated by the commission or terrified. Perhaps both. It was a great honour, but also a terrible responsibility. Sure, they were given all the materials they could possibly need, but still, the work of fashioning a god and making for him a portable house? That must have been stressful. When the bark and its shrine were complete, they were taken to the sanctuary of Amun. There, a ceremony of consecration took place, and priests came forth representing the gods of the land. Perhaps wearing masks or carrying emblems, different religious actors gave homage to the new statue of Amun in place of the deities they represented. Quote, The souls of Buto hail it, the souls of Neken praise it. The divine singers do homage to its beauty. Its projecting ends make the water glitter, as when the Aten rises in the sky, when it makes its goodly crossing at the festival of Opet, at its crossing to the west of millions of years. The king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Neb Ma'at Re, the son of Re, Amunhotep, ruler of Thebes, who is alert in seeking what is beneficent. End quote. There was an interesting reference in there. Did you catch it? Among the gods who praise the new shrine, there are beings of incredible antiquity. The gods of Buto and Neken are beings worshipped since the most ancient times and in the most ancient communities of the land. But there is also the god Aten, an old but newly prominent deity who is beginning to gain popularity among the theological communities of Thebes. We'll meet Aten again, but his appearance here is noteworthy. The bark, shrine, and statue of the god were consecrated and housed in the inner sanctuary of Karnak. The craftsmen were rewarded for a job well done, and they breathed a sigh of relief. It was a great achievement, and a landmark in their careers. Now, it was the sculptor's turn, as Amunhotep turned his attention to yet another addition to the great city. If you visit Luxor Temple today, you will, at the very front, see a long roadway that is lined by sphinxes. These sphinxes are sacred to Amun, and they form a processional route between the Temple of Luxor and the Temple of Karnak. On this route, which we call the Avenue of Sphinxes, celebrations like the Opet Festival took place. It is a road dominated by the work of Amunhotep. The Avenue of Sphinxes was probably first consecrated by Queen Hatshepsut. Building on her work, Amunhotep III had the route extended and new statues added. Some of these statues take the form of a ram sacred to Amun. Others are traditional sphinxes, lion bodies with human heads. They line a causeway which runs between Luxor and the southern entrance of Karnak. Along this route, exactly 365 sphinxes, one for every day, mark the ceremonial road. The sphinxes remain today, and they are slowly being restored to bring the processional roadway back to life. Amunhotep and Hatshepsut's works endure, and their legacy is returning. It is a great project. Finally, the third noteworthy addition to the city of Thebes was a new sacred space. It is called the Viewing Place, but it seems to have been a cross between a garden, a pleasure resort, and a bar. It's called the Maru, 
and it is a very curious monument indeed. The Maru, which literally means viewing place, is a type of monument associated with the sun. It's an open area with pavilions for relaxation, gardens for comfort, and a lake for pleasure boating. Part resort, part country garden, the Maru was a new symbol of the comforts and splendours of Thebes. Quote, Another monument that his majesty made for his father Amun was making for him a viewing place, Maru, as a divine offering. It was built opposite to Luxor Temple, a place of relaxation for my father Amun at his beautiful feast. In the midst of the Maru, I erected a great temple resembling the sun god when he rises on the horizon. The Maru is planted with all kinds of flowers. End quote. This viewing place, Maru, was set somewhere near the route between Karnak and Luxor temples. It hasn't been found yet, but it was probably near the water's edge. Since it had a lake, it would need to be close to the river, but preferably not too far from Karnak or Luxor. You see, the viewing place was meant to be used, first and foremost, as a resting stop on festival processions. When Amun's statue left his great temples and went out on parade, the priests would be carrying it on their shoulders. Periodically, they would need rest, and the Maru seems to be a formal stopping point for that purpose. You can't just put the divine statue down in the dirt anywhere, you need somewhere appropriate. So Amunhotep's architects designed a pleasure palace for the great god's pleasure. The god's pleasure and the king's. The Maru was like a garden of worship. It sounds beautiful, a stately pleasure dome decreed by Pharaoh for the rest and satisfaction of his father. Interestingly, the king describes it as a monument built in the sun god's image, which would go along with the design. An open space, lots of light, and gardens and water on which the sun could shine benevolently. It's all very Versailles-esque, a lavish estate for a sun king, rejoicing in the splendour of his domain. The Maru at Luxor had a small lake or harbour as well. This lake would fill with the waters of the Nile, and probably with fish. On this lake, the king and his queen, T, could sail in boats and enjoy the leisure of their wealth. Quote, the Maru has more wine than water. It overflows like harpy of the Nile. It is a house of the Lord of Eternity, Amun, a place for receiving the produce of all foreign lands, because millions of gifts are brought before my father from the tribute of all countries. End quote. Once again, like the third pylon of Karnak, Amunhotep notes the quantities of treasure which funded his new works. The gold of Nubia, the wood of Lebanon, the copper of Cyprus, the art of Syria and Crete came to his land. Putting this wealth to use, Amunhotep could fund works of surpassing splendour. The Maru viewing place was a good location to enjoy his opulence. I find it interesting that Amunhotep says, the Maru has more wine than water. This is a great reference, which harkens back to the wine estates which we see in 18th dynasty tombs. We covered these a few episodes back. Essentially, the mid-18th dynasty, and in particular the reign of Amunhotep III, is seen as a time in which wine is so abundant it verily overflows throughout Egypt. 
Considering the status or prestige of wine, and the complicated manner in which it's made, this is a metaphor for saying that Egypt is at the very height of its decadence. Osiris, the lord of wine, would be most proud. We've heard a lot about Amunhotep's devotion to Amun, and the resources he put into making Karnak, Luxor, and the Maru the most opulent sanctuaries possible. But what of Amun himself? How did he respond to the king's largesse? Well, never missing a beat, Amunhotep closes his litany of monuments with a speech by the great god himself. Quote, The speech of Amun, king of gods, to my son, my beloved Neb Ma'atre. My heart is twice joyful when I see your beauty, and I did a wonder for your majesty. You will repeat your youth, for I made you the sun of the east and west. Turning my face to the south, I did a wonder for you, Amunhotep. I made the chiefs of wretched Kush surround you, carrying all of their tribute on their backs. Turning my face to the north, I did a wonder for you. I made the countries of Asia come to you, carrying all their tribute on their backs. They offer you their persons and their children, beseeching you to grant them the breath of life. Turning my face to the west, I did a wonder for you. I let you capture the Chehenu or Libyans. They cannot escape. Turning my face to the east, I did a wonder for you. The lands of Punt come to you, with all the fragrant flowers of their lands, to beg your peace and breathe the air you give. End quote. The speech of Amun is clear. The four directions, south, north, west, and east, bow to Amunhotep. Their peoples bring tribute, and they beg for their lives and for the blessings of the pharaoh. With the power of Egypt supreme, Amunhotep is the lord of every foreign land. Amun promises his son a long life. He even offers him that gift which many of us might grab at. Amunhotep will repeat his youth, living his golden years twice over. In this way, the king will be vigorous and energetic, far beyond that of mortals. His splendor will shine twice as long. Considering the immortal legacy of Amunhotep III, it is hard to argue with Amun's promise. The king really has lived forever. The blessings of Amun rained down over the king, and Amunhotep III reveled in his splendor. Quote, Amun has given to me the princes of the southern lands. Southerners and northerners surpass one another with their silver, their gold, their cattle, all kinds of precious stones of their countries, in millions, hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, and thousands. I act for my begetter with affection, because he has appointed me as the son of the nine bows, the king of upper and lower Egypt, Neb, Ma'at, Re, image of Re, the son of Re, Amunhotep, the ruler of Thebes. End quote. With the wealth of the world flowing into the city, Amunhotep III could look out over the cityscape with pride. At Karnak and Luxor, scaffolds teemed with men, building his great pylons and sanctuaries. In the workshops, artisans produced statues, shrines, and barks for the gods, images of ornate splendor and beauty. Finally, in the Maru viewing place, gardeners tended to the beds, and boats rowed gently across the lake. 
everywhere the king looked, his realm seemed blessed. We now come to the end of today's episode. My special thanks to Doug Metzger of the Literature and History podcast for providing the reading of Homer, specifically the role of Achilles. Thank you, Doug. If you're looking for a great podcast, check out Literature and History. It is wonderful. Next time, we'll explore another Theban monument, the king's great mortuary temple, which would rise on the west bank of the city. Although this mortuary temple is largely gone, its legacy remains, symbolized by two statues which stand solitary near the banks of the Nile. The Colossi of Memnon in episode 96. See you soon! Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. If you are enjoying the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes. The gods live on offerings, the pharaohs live on bread, but a podcast lives on reviews. Every review increases our visibility on the iTunes algorithm, and by doing that, you're helping me bring Egypt to more people. If you have left a review, thank you kindly. I will make offerings to Amun on your behalf. to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.